Chapter Three of The Young Railroaders. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Young Railroaders by F. Lovell Coombs. Chapter Three: A Tinker Who Made Good. Most telegraph operators, young operators especially, have a number of over-the-wire friends. Alex Ward's particular telegraph chum was Jack Orr, or Orr, O-R, as he knew him on the wire, a lad of just his own age, son of the proprietor of the drug store in which the town, or commercial office, was located at Haddoville, a small place at the end of the line. The two boys had become warm friends through sending for one another's improvement in reading, in the evenings when the wire was idle but also because of the similarities of taste they had discovered. Both were fond of experimenting, and learning the why and wherefore of things electrical. And not infrequently they got themselves into trouble, as young investigators will. One evening that summer, the instruments being silent, Jack, at Haddoville, bethought himself of taking the relay, the main receiving instrument, to pieces, to discover exactly how the wire connections in the base were arranged. To think with Jack was to act. Half an hour later his father, entering with an important message, found Jack with the instrument in a dozen pieces. Mr. Orr viewed the muss with consternation. Then he spoke sharply. "'Jack, if that relay is not together again and working in five minutes, I'll take you out to the woodshed.' Needless to say, Jack threw himself into the restoring of the instrument with ardor, while his father stood grimly by. And fortunately the relay was in its place again, and clicking, within the prescribed time. "'But don't ever let me catch you tinkering with the instruments again,' said Jack's father warningly, as he gave Jack the message to send. "'Another time it'll be the woodshed whether you get them together or no. Remember!' Shortly after midnight, the night following, Jack suddenly found himself sitting up in bed, wondering what had awakened him. From the street below came the sound of running feet. Simultaneously the window lighted with a yellow glare, and with a bound and an exclamation of, "'Fire!' Jack was across the room and peering out. "'Jones's coal-sheds! Or the station!' he ejaculated and in a moment was back at the bedside, dressing as only a boy can dress for a fire. Running to his parents' bedroom, he told them of his going, and was down the stairs and out into the street in a trice. Dim figures of men and other boys were hurrying by in the direction of the town fire hall, a block distant, and on the run Jack also headed thither. For to help pull the fire engine or a hose-cart to a fire was the ardent hobby of every lad in town. A half-dozen members of the volunteer fire company, and as many boys, were at the doors when Jack arrived, and the fire chief, already equipped with helmet and speaking trumpet, was fumbling at the lock. "'Where is it, Billy?' inquired Jack of a boy acquaintance. "'They say it's the station and freight shed, and Johnson's lumber yard, and the coal sheds, the whole shooting match,' said Billy, hopefully. "'Bully!' responded Jack, who, never having seen his own home in flames, likewise regarded fires as the most thrilling sort of entertainment. "'Out of the way!' cried the chief. The big doors swung open, 
and with a rush the little crowd divided and went at the old-fashioned hand-engine and the hose-cart. Billy and Jack secured the particular prize, the head of the engine drag-rope, and like a pair of young colts pranced out with it to its full length. Others seized it, and with the cry of, "'Let her go!' they went rumbling forth and swung up the street. The hose-cart, with its automatic gong, clanged out immediately after, and the race that always occurred was on. The engine, of course, had the start, but the hose-cart, a huge two-wheeled reel, about which the hose was wound, was much lighter, and speedily was clanging abreast of them. Here, however, Big Ed Hicks, the blacksmith, and Nick White, a coloured giant, rushed up, dodged beneath the rope, and took their accustomed places at the tongue, and with a burst of speed the engine began to draw ahead. Other firemen appeared from side streets and banging doorways, and took their places on the rope, and a shout from the juvenile contingent presently announced that the reel was falling to the rear. Meanwhile the glare in the sky had brightened and spread, and when at last the rumbling engine swung into the station road, the whole sky was ablaze. Overhead, before a stiff wind, large embers and sparks were beginning to fly. With a dash the panting company swept into the station square. Before them the station and adjoining freight-shed were enveloped in flames from end to end. It was apparent at once that there was no possibility of saving either. But with a final rush the engine squad made for the fire-well at the corner of the square, brought up all standing, and in a jiffy the intake-pipe was unstrapped and dropped into the water. The reel clanged up, two of its crew sprang for the engine with the hose-end and couplers, and the cart sped on, peeling the hose out behind it. The speed with which they could get into action was a matter of pride with the Haddowville firemen. Almost before the coupling had been made at the engine, the men and boys at the long pumping bars were working them gently. Within the minute a shout from the cart announced that the hose was being broken. The pumpers threw themselves into the work with zest, and the next moment from the distant nozzle shot a sputtering stream. With the other boys, Jack, though now considerably winded, was throwing himself energetically up and down against one of the long handles. Before many minutes, however, the remainder of the regular engine-men appeared and took their places, and presently Jack also was ousted. At once he set off for a closer view of the fire. Halfway he was halted by a call. "'Hey, Jack! Come and help push the freight-cars!' The shout came from a group of boys running for the rear of the burning freight-shed, and responding with alacrity, Jack joined them, and soon, just beyond the burning building, was pushing against the corner of a slowly moving box-car with all his might. One car was rolled safely out of the danger-zone, and Jack's party hastened back for another. The innermost of the remaining cars, and on a separate siding, was but a short distance from the flaming shed, and already was blazing on the roof. Jack and several other adventurous spirits determined to tackle this one on their own account. After much straining, they got it in motion. Suddenly, a wildly excited figure appeared rushing through the smoke, and shouted at the top of his voice, "'Get back! Get back! There's blasting powder in that car!' In a twinkle there was a wild stampede, and but just in time. With a blinding flash and a roar like a thunderbolt, the car shot into the air in a million pieces. 
Many persons in the vicinity were thrown violently to the ground, including Jack. As he scrambled, thoroughly frightened, to his feet, someone shouted, "'Look out overhead!' And glancing up, Jack saw a shower of burning fragments high in the air. Then rose the cry, "'The wind has taken them right over the town!' In alarm, many people began leaving the square for their homes. Jack's own home and the drugstore block were well on the other side of the town, however, and with no thought of anxiety Jack remained to watch the burning station, now a solid mass of flame from ground to roof. Presently, glancing toward the opposite corner of the square, Jack noted a general hurried movement of the crowd there into the street. He set out to investigate. As he neared the fire-engine, still clanking vigorously, a bareheaded man rushed up and asked excitedly for the fire-chief. "'The telephone building in a house on Essex Street, and one on the next street back, are burning!' he cried. "'Quick, and do something, or the whole town will be afire!' Looking in the direction indicated, Jack saw a wavering glare, and with a new thrill of excitement was immediately off on the run. The telephone exchange was one of the largest buildings in town. As he came within sight of the new conflagration, the flames already were leaping from the roof and roaring from the upper windows. Despite the heat, the crowd before the building was clustered close about the door of the telephone office, and Jack hastened to join them to learn the cause. Making his way through the throng, he reached the front as a blanketed figure staggered, smoking from the doorway. Someone sprang forward and caught the blanket from the stumbling man, at the same time crying, "'Did you get them?' "'No!' gasped the telephone operator, for Jack saw it was he. "'The whole office is in flames. I couldn't get inside the door!' Mayor Davis, the first speaker, turned quickly about. "'Then we'll run down to Orr's and telegraph!' At once Jack understood. The mayor wished to send for help from other towns. He sprang forward. "'I'm here, Mr. Davis. Jack Orr. I'll take a message.' "'Good,' said the mayor. "'Run like the wind, my boy, and send a telegram to the mayors of Zeisler and Hammerton for help. As many steam engines as they can spare. And have the railroad people supply a special at once. Write the message yourself, and sign my name.' Tell them four more fires have broken out, and that the whole town may be in danger. Jack broke through the crowd, and was off like a deer. Farther down the street he passed another building, a small dwelling, burning, with its frightened occupants and their neighbors hurrying furniture out, and fighting the flames with buckets. Down the next cross street he saw flames bursting from a second house. Then it was that the real gravity of the situation began to come home to Jack. Till now it had all been only a thrilling drama. Even the bearing of the mayor's urgent message had appeared rather a dramatically prominent stage part he had had thrust upon him. On he sped with redoubled speed, and turned into the main street. Then his alarm became genuine. Lurid flames were licking over the treetops directly ahead of him, in the direction of the store. A moment later a cry of horror broke from him. It was indeed the store-block. But his own personal alarm was quickly lost in a greater. Suppose the telegraph office also should be in flames, and he unable to reach it. He ran on madly. He neared the store, 
and with hope saw that so far the flames were only in the second story. Men were hurrying in and out, and from the hardware store adjoining. But as he rushed to the drug store door a cloud of heavy smoke rolled forth, driving a group of men before it. Among them he recognized his father. "'Dad!' he cried. "'Can't I reach the instruments? I've a message for help to Hammerton and Zeisler from the mayor. The phone office and the station are burned. There's no other way of getting word out.' Mr. Orr had halted in consternation. "'No, you couldn't get to them. The telegraph room is a furnace. The fire came in through the office windows from the outhouse, and I closed the door from the store.' Through the haze of smoke within burst a lurid fork of flame. "'There! The fire is out through the telegraph-room door,' said the druggist. "'You couldn't get near the table. And anyway, Jack, the instruments would be useless by this time.' It was this remark that aroused Jack. "'If I could rip them from the table in any kind of shape, perhaps I could fix them up quickly so I could use them,' he thought. To his father he said with sudden determination, "'Dad, I'm going to make a try for the key and relay.' "'No, I won't permit it,' declared Mr. Orr decisively. "'But, Father, if we don't get word out, the whole town may be burned,' cried Jack. "'I'll make a try myself,' said Mr. Orr, and without further word lowered his head and dashed back into the smoke. While Jack stood anxiously awaiting his father's reappearance, the owner of the adjacent hardware store stumbled from his doorway— under a bundle of horse-blankets. With an immediate idea Jack ran toward him. "'Mr. Wells, let me have some of those blankets,' he said hurriedly. "'We want to try and reach the telegraph instruments. They are the only hope for getting word out of town for help. Father is in after them, but I don't think he can reach them with nothing over him.' The merchant promptly threw the whole bundle to the ground. "'Help yourself,' he directed. At the door again he called back. Can you use anything else? No. Say, yes, a pair of leather gauntlets. The merchant disappeared, reappeared, and threw toward Jack a bundle of leather gloves. Many as you want, he shouted. Catching them up in two of the blankets, Jack sprang back for their own store as his father reappeared. <coughs> they can't be reached, coughed Mr. Orr. Couldn't even get to the door. "'I'll try with these blankets, then,' said Jack decisively. "'Throw them over my head, please.' His father hesitated. "'But, my boy—' "'There's little danger, Dad. The blankets are thick, and I know just where the instruments are. And see, I'll wear these gauntlets,' he added, pulling a pair over his hands. Somewhat reluctantly, Mr. Orr took the blankets and threw them over Jack's head, and on the run Jack plunged into the wall of smoke." With one gloved hand outstretched he found the telegraph-room door and the knob. He pressed against it, and with a crash and then a roar the door collapsed before him. But without a moment's hesitation he darted on within, groped his way to the table, found the relay, and with a desperate wrench tore it from its place. The next moment he dashed blindly into his father's arms at the outer door and threw the smoking blankets and sizzling burning relay to the sidewalk. "'Water on it, quick!' gasped Jack, pointing to the instrument. Catching it up in a corner of one of the blankets, Mr. Orr ran with it to a horse-trough in front, and plunged it into the water. As he returned, Jack was drawing on a second pair of gauntlets. 
"'Jack, you're not going back,' said his father sharply. "'I want the key, Dad.' "'Look there.' Glancing within, Jack saw that the whole rear of the store was now enveloped in flames. "'And it would be of no use in any case. Look at this,' said Mr. Orr, holding up the smoking relay. The instrument did indeed look a hopeless wreck as Jack took it. The base was cracked and charred, the rubber jacket about the magnet coils was frizzled and warped, the fine wire connections beneath were gone, and the armature spring was missing. But Jack was not one to give up while a single hope remained. "'I could improvise a key,' he said, and with decision hastily sought the hardware merchant. "'Mr. Wells, did you save any screwdrivers?' he asked. "'In a box down there. Help yourself.' Running thither, Jack found the tool, and immediately began taking the relay apart. An exclamation of disappointment greeted the discovery that the fine copper wire within one of the coil jackets had been melted into a solid mass. On ripping open the sizzled jacket of the other, however, Jack found the silk covering the wire to be only scorched, and determined to do the best he could with the one magnet. Removing the relay entirely from the burned base, he secured a thin piece of board from one of the boxes near him, from the miscellaneous tools in another box found a gimlet, and made the necessary perforations, and soon he had the brass coil-frame mounted. Meantime Mr. Orr, not for a moment thinking Jack could do anything with the charred instrument, had joined the crowd of men and women watching the burning building from across the street. "'Father! Here, please!' called Jack. In some wonder Mr. Orr responded, and with him the hardware merchant. "'Have you a rubber band in your pocket?' asked Jack. "'I want it for the armature spring.' "'Why, you are not really doing anything with it, Jack!' exclaimed his father. "'Yes, sir. I think I can make it go,' responded Jack, with a little touch of elation. "'And with only one magnet. But have you the rubber?' "'Here.' said Mr. Wells, snapping a rubber band from his pocket-book. "'This do?' "'Just the thing. Thanks.' And while the two men looked on, Jack secured one end of the elastic to the little hook on the armature, and knotted the other about the tension thumbscrew. That done, Jack caught up a hammer and smashed the useless coil to pieces, from the wreck, secured several intact ends of the fine wire, and with them quickly restored the burnt connections between the magnet and the binding-posts. And with a cry, half of jubilation and half of nervous excitement, he caught up the now roughly restored instrument and ran towards an iron-gas street-lamp. In the roadway, a short distance from the lamp-posts, lay the burned-off end of the telegraph wire. Placing the instrument on the sidewalk, Jack ran for the wire, and dragged it also to the post. Then, as the crowd, following his father and the hardware merchant, gathered about him, they saw him secure a piece of wire about the iron lamp-post, then to the instrument, and, dropping to a sitting position, placed the instrument on his knees, catch up the telegraph line, and hold it to the other side of the relay. Jack's low cry of disappointment was echoed by his father. "'No use! I was afraid of it, my boy!' said Mr. Orr, resignedly. There was a disturbance on the outskirts of the crowd, and the mayor appeared pushing his way through. "'Didn't you get that message off, Jack?' he cried excitedly. 
"'The fire was too quick for us,' said Mr. Orr. "'Jack risked his life getting out one of the instruments, but it has proved useless.' "'Oh, say, now I know what's the matter!' With a cry, Jack sprang to his feet, broke through the circle about him, and sped back toward the store. The flames were now bursting from the front, but with head down he ran to the iron door covering the street entrance to the cellar, and lifted it. A thin stream of smoke arose, then disappeared as a draft toward the rear set in. With a thankful, Good! Jack leaped into the opening. His father, the mayor, and several others who had rushed after in consternation reached the sidewalk as Jack's head reappeared, followed by a green battery jar. Placing the jar on the ledge, he stooped and raised another. "'What do you think you're doing?' cried his father. "'I'll explain in a minute. Take them over to the post, please.' And Jack had again disappeared. The mayor promptly caught up the two cells, but Mr. Orr has promptly dropped through the opening and followed Jack. "'What are you trying to do?' he demanded, as he groped his way to the battery shelf. "'You can't do anything with a battery if you have no instrument.' "'The instrument is all right, father.' The line has been grounded south, that's all. If we put battery on here, we can reach some office between here and wherever the ground is on. "'May it be so,' said Mr. Orr fervently, but not hopefully, as they hurried with four more jars to the entrance. When they had carried out a dozen jars, Jack declared the number to be sufficient, and scrambling forth, they hastened back to the lamp-post. Without delay, Jack connected the cells in proper series, and removing the wire between the instrument and the iron post, substituted the battery, zinc to the post, and copper to the instrument. Then once more he caught up the severed end of the mainline wire, and touched the opposite side of the instrument. A cry of triumph, then a mighty shout, greeted the responding click. "'But what about a key, son?' said Mr. Orr. "'This for the moment,' replied Jack, and simply resting his elbow on his knee, and tapping with the end of the wire against the brass binding-posts, he began urgently calling. "'H.N. H.N. H.N.' he clicked. "'H.N. H.N. H.V. Rush. Q.K. H.N. H.N.' "'Perhaps the wire is grounded between here and Hammerton,' suggested his father, breathlessly. "'Anybody answer.' "'Q.K.' sent Jack. "'Does anybody hear this?' "'What's the matter? This is Z.' "'Got Seisler!' shouted Jack. The mayor stepped forward. "'Send them the message,' he directed, "'and have them phone it to Hammerton.' Jack did so, and fifteen minutes later the cheering news ran quickly about the threatened town that two steam fire-engines were starting by special train from Hammerton immediately would pick up another at Zeisler, and would be on the scene within half an hour. All of which report proved true, the engines arriving on the dot, and by daylight the last of the several different fires were under control, and the safety of the town was assured. Needless to say, Jack's name played an important part in the dramatic newspaper accounts of the conflagration, nor to add that he was the envied hero of every other lad in town for weeks to come. The final and particular result of the affair, however, was the offer to Jack of a good position in the large commercial telegraph office at Hammerton, which he at last induced his parents, 
to permit him to accept. End of chapter